Take your Bible, if you would, open it to Matthew 24. We are gonna be in Genesis 6. We're looking at failure, favor, and the flood. But we're gonna start off with a couple of New Testament passages, and they will be found in Matthew 24. As we uh, move in from Genesis 5 to Genesis 6, we remember that Genesis 5 was this incredible list of names, and we are kinda going through the list of names, and we looked at Enoch's exit, And then we saw this incredible message emerge in Genesis 5 from the names of the Sethite line. And we found the message, man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. That's on this sheet on the information counter inside if you wanted. Some of you mentioned that you wanted a copy of this, so if you want a hard copy, that's where it is. An incredible message um, right there within the the genealogical names in Genesis chapter five. Enoch was the primary guy that we focused on and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And he had a testimony recorded in Hebrews 11 that he lived a life that was pleasing to God. I heard another pastor say, we need to live out what we're trying to give out. We need to live out what we're trying to give out. Your life is a powerful testimony. It's not the only testimony. The word of God is the most powerful testimony of all. But if our lives don't, at least in some sense, line up with the word of God, then we lose our witness. Enoch's witness was he lived a life pleasing to God. And I asked you last week to maybe take a look at your own walk and ask the question, is that true of me? Am I trying to live out what I want to give out? Or are you even bothering to try to give out the gospel. That's what we should be doing, especially in light of this particular passage, because this passage is going to take us literally into some deep and debated waters, pun intended, pun intended, because we're gonna look at Noah's Ark, and we're gonna ask some questions like, was there really a worldwide flood? Was there really a Noah's Ark? I know we've seen the Ark in all the Sunday school rooms with the animals smiling so wonderfully and all of that. But is that story really true? You know it's debated. You know that there are people who do not believe there was a worldwide flood. They believe things like the Grand Canyon were created by a river running uphill for millions of years. Yeah, right. But the Bible teaches there was actually a cataclysmic judgment of God, and that judgment came in response to the degeneration of mankind. And Jesus makes some comments about the days of Noah, and he says the days of Noah are going to parallel the days just prior to his return. Let's pray. Father, as we look at failure, your favor, and the flood, we look at Noah, a man who really spoke to his generation, not only as a preacher of righteousness, but what he built was so amazing and so incredible and such an act of faith that he condemned the rest of the the world by his act of faith. Noah's life is about faith. Faith is something that's so important, Lord. In fact, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Enoch pleased you, Noah pleased you. We wanna be people that please you in a generation that is sliding quickly away from its foundations. Lord, I pray that you'll give us ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. 
I will add, Lord, that none of us are adequate for these things. We all realize our inadequacy. So we just pray that you'll meet us where we are this morning and fill us with your spirit and make us more than conquerors through him who loved us. We lay this time at your feet and pray you'll speak to us powerfully. In Jesus' name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 24, verse three, it says he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, three, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Matthew 24, four, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Skip down to verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ, Matthew 24, 24, and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Skip down to verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Mark that in your Bible. For as in those days which were before the flood, apparently Jesus believed in the flood. You know, whenever I'm asking questions about theology and the Bible, I begin to ask questions like, well, where else is this confirmed? And what did Jesus say about this? And, and pray tell, Jesus believed that there was a flood. And he compared the time of his second coming to conditions that were in the world at the time of the flood. He said, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days, which were before the flood, 38, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand, and the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Skip to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke 17. Luke records these words from Jesus, again, Regarding the days of Noah, Luke 17, look at verse uh, 26 with me. Luke 17, 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, Luke 17, 27. They were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot, They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Would you go back to Genesis chapter six? Genesis chapter six. Jesus draws parallels between the days of Noah, the days of Lot, and the return of Jesus Christ. And what he talks about is people being married, given in marriage, people eating and drinking, people buying and selling, people building. And those are all things that we would say are normal activities. In fact, I would argue that the text is really saying that people were about business as usual until the day that Noah entered the ark, the very day they were still up to it, and until the day that it rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says it will be just that day at the coming, just that way at the coming of the Son of Man. Here's my point. 
It is easy for people to ignore the signs of the times. It is easy to stay in a bubble of your own personal space, your own worries, your own concerns, and ignore what's going on in the world. Ignore the signs of the times. And that has been man's tendency from early on in the history of mankind. We, we can tend to kind of just you know, isolate ourselves and think about our own little world until our own little world is affected by what's going on. Then it becomes personal. It's like the story of the pastor, he's in his office, and he tells his secretary, I don't wanna be bothered, I'm trying to study, don't bother me with anything. And the phone rings and it's the secretary, and he's all mad, the pastor, I thought I told you not to bother me. And she said, there's been an accident out in front of the church, I just thought you'd wanna know. I told you don't bother me. Your daughter was involved in the accident. Your daughter was hit. Now that changes everything, doesn't it? You see, Jesus is saying we've got to pay attention. The, the times of Genesis 6 and Genesis 19, 18 and 19, which we'll study later, are indicative of the signs of the times. Now many of you believe, the signs of the times for the second coming, many of you believe that we're moving rapidly towards that time. So if that is true, we should start to look around and ask, are we seeing parallels to the days of Noah? In order to find that out, we've gotta know what was going on in the days of Noah. What did the world look like? What was going on? One writer said marriage was being demonized, and that could be literally. Life was being shortened, and violence was being idolized. Now, Genesis 6 records these words, and we're only gonna go up to verse eight this morning. Now, it came about, Genesis 6, 1, when men, that's ha-adam, that's a basic description of the human race began to multiply. So rapid population increased, Genesis 6, 1, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. That the sons of God, this phrase is bene ha Elohim, and sons of God uh, is actually rendered in the Septuagint, which is the, the ancient translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was finished between 300 and 250 BC. It was done by 70 top-notch Jewish scholars. And they render this particular section as angels. So the sons of God, they've got as angels in the Septuagint. The sons of God saw the daughters, that the daughters of men were beautiful. Notice there's a contrast between the sons of God and the daughters of men. The daughters of men is banath adam. It's a, again, a general term. It's not really specifying a line. It's just saying daughters were born to mankind. And these sons of God, whoever they were and are, and we should note here, and I think many of you know this, that this is a controversial passage in terms of what does this really mean? Who are these sons of God? Well, the sons of God saw, they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives. The word for wives is Isha. It's a general word for woman, but it also can speak of a wife. They took wives for themselves whom they chose. The Hebrew implies that the ladies didn't have much choice in the matter. So as Genesis 6 opens up and we begin to look at the days of Noah, we find this interesting, intriguing, and debated section where these sons of God see the daughters of men and they take wives, and the wives are plural, which implies polygamy. One major view of this particular section is that the sons of God are dynastic rulers of the day, an early royal aristocracy, 
and that what they're doing is taking women as they want them and creating harems early on in man's history, and they are just kind of doing what they wanna do, and they're practicing polygamous relationships, and that's one view. A second view is that the sons of God, verse two, are the godly Sethites, which we saw in chapter five. The daughters of men are ungodly Canaanites, so that the sin here that's being committed is that the godly line of Seth is marrying with the ungodly line of Cain, and we know later in the Bible, it says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and so the sin is this godly line is now being defiled or corrupted by the ungodly line of Cain. That's a very major uh, acceptable view in orthodoxy, and in fact, it's the more intellectually palatable view. In fact, if I had my choice, I would choose that view because it makes sense, it's, it fits with you know, normal kind of life stuff. But there's a third view here, and the third view is the oldest and was widely embraced uh, throughout really church history. In fact, the Septuagint translates sons of God as angeloi tau feu, which speaks of angels. And sons of God, when it's used in three other places in the book of Job, this is Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and 38, 7. Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and 38, 7. The only other places you'll see it in the Old Testament, the sons of God are angels. And so what is going on here is that many ancient, what's called ancient exegetes who interpreted scripture, believe that what's going on here is that angels somehow got involved with human women. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? It almost sounds like some of the mythology of demigods and that kind of stuff that unfolded in history. And and there's all kinds of questions about how and why and what was going on in this time that something like this is even a possibility. Well, one thing we know, if you look at the verse, just breaking it down, is they saw something and they took. What was driving these sons of God was lust. They saw and they took. This is very similar language to what happened to Eve in the garden. She saw that the tree was good for food, that it was beautiful to the eyes, it was able to make one wise, and she took and ate of its fruit. And so that's how she fell. She was tantalized by this wonderful looking temptation, and so she took and ate, and the, the, the uh, mankind plunged into sin, and the human race was corrupted by that sin. When David was uh, up on his rooftop at a time when kings were supposed to go to war, he saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. From the roof, he saw the woman bathing. She was very beautiful in appearance. 2 Samuel 11, two through five, David sent messengers and he took her and he was intimate with her and she was impregnated and then that was David's downfall. He saw and he took. I don't have to tell you right now that we live in a generation that is being tempted by visual images like we have never seen before. It is such a rampant epidemic right now, not only outside the church, but inside the church, that it is a struggle untold by many, many individuals. Because these images are just a click away. You can get them on your phone, you can get them on your computer. And if you don't make up your mind to guard your eyes, and to make a covenant with your eyes not to defile yourself, 
you're gonna be in trouble. And once people open the door to pornography, it becomes such a stronghold in people's lives, it becomes something almost like a powerful drug. Well, we do know that men wrestle with uh, these visual images, and that's why I just wanna encourage you ladies to dress appropriately. Men are very visual. They are stumbled very easily. It doesn't mean that you have to wrap your whole body up in cloth. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying about being reasonable so that you don't become a stumbling block to others. Very important in the church. And so they saw and they took. Whoever these sons of God are, they were captivated by the beauty of women. And they decided that they were gonna take what they wanted and they did, and they took wives. So this is plural. It could be women. They took women or wives. Now you might be asking, okay, I like the second uh, idea. I like that this was the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. That sounds reasonable, it sounds palatable, but it's probably not the strongest argument. And I'll tell you why. Whenever you're looking at your Bible, the first thing that you wanna do is let scripture interpret scripture. That's just a basic rule of interpretation. Is there anywhere else where this is mentioned in your Bible? It's mentioned in three New Testament texts. Let's go there. First Peter is the first one. It's in the back of the New Testament. First Peter chapter three, go there. And I, I mentioned to you, First Peter chapter three, that the earliest Jewish exegetes believed this view. This is recorded in First Enoch, the book of Jubilees, this particular view that the sons, sons of God are angels. It's recorded in the Septuagint. It's uh, recorded in the writings of Philo, Josephus, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The same position was held by early Christian writers such as Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Origen. However, I will tell you that the Sethite view, that this is the line of Seth intermarrying with the Cainites, came really from Chrysostom and Augustine, so moving into the uh, early uh, centuries of church history. And if you look at 1 Peter 3.18, here's what it says. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation. That word is caruso in Greek. It means to herald or proclaim. He made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient, verse 20, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Just mark that, God is patient. He doesn't want people to perish. During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now when Jesus died, he went to this place where spirits are, apparently are imprisoned and he made a proclamation to them. And here's the question. What was the proclamation? The Greek word caruso can be used to herald the, herald the gospel, but what determines the meaning is the context of the flow of the verses. And what uh, it could be going on here is that Jesus is actually making a proclamation to these spirits who tried to pollute the human race. Think with me for a second. In Genesis 3.15, God makes the proto-euangelion, the proto-evangelism, and he says 
that a Messiah is coming that's gonna bruise the serpent's head. Remember that, Genesis 3.15? Then in Genesis 5, we have this message that the Lord's gonna come and he's going to bring judgment and he's going to uh, bring cleansing and, and uh, 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 judgment on mankind. Now, the enemy knows this. The enemy knows that his time is short, that his head's gonna be crushed by the Messiah. What would you do if you were the enemy? Well, in all likelihood, you would try to stop the arrival of that Messiah. As I've mentioned to you in the past, this does happen in history. It happens through Egypt, through the Pharaoh, throwing the Hebrew male babies into the river. It happens through Assyria. It happens through Babylon. It happens through Medo-Persia. It happens under Haman when he tries to get the Jews wiped out and Esther steps up to the plate. It happened through Herod when he tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. It's happened through the Ottoman Empire and the uh, German Nazi Empire that tried to wipe out all the Jewish people. And we have to ask a question. And this, this is part of what I wanna get across to you this morning is there's really just a couple of ways to understand the world. You can understand the world as an accident that happened and we're just kind of, nobody's steering the ship and we're just going wherever. Or you can understand the world through a spiritual lens. If you understand the world through a spiritual lens, you understand that there's a battle. The battle's not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers. There's a struggle going on. There is a literal devil, a literal enemy, a literal struggle. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to what? To devour. There's a spiritual battle going on. And this would explain the history of Israel and why the people continue to try to destroy them. If you were the enemy, what would you do? Probably try to stop the Messiah from coming. There are some scholars embracing this view of angels as sons of God in Genesis 6 saying that this was some sort of attempt to corrupt the human race and keep that seed from coming down the line of Seth and so forth. But one thing that we have to remember when we look at scripture is that the scripture really doesn't say it was an attempt to corrupt. It just says that these sons of God saw these women and they basically seem to be driven by lust. If you go to 2 Peter, just the next book to the right, here's another treatment of this time. 2 Peter 2, look at verse four. The context is false teachers who are driven by their sensual pleasures and they, the way of the truth is maligned by their behavior. 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 says, for if God, or since God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live godly, ungodly thereafter. Notice in verse uh, four, God did not spare angels when they sinned. He cast them into this place called Tartarus. It's, one of the, it's a picture of dark judgment and imprisonment until the final judgment. Keep going to your right. Go to the book of Jude, just before Revelation. Here's the third New Testament commentary on what happened here, and there are some that don't believe every one of these passages are commenting on Genesis, but I don't see how you can really hold that. But here's Jude, one chapter, verse five. 
Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, Jude, verse six. And angels who did not keep their own domain, that's arcane in Greek, that means their own source or origin or what they were supposed to be doing, but abandoned their proper abode or habitation. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. You might ask, well, how do we know what they did? What, what did these angels do? Verse seven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality, went after strange flesh, and are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Three New Testament passages if you go back to Genesis 6, that seem to imply or directly state that angels left their proper abode and somehow got involved with human women. Now the, the question would be, how would this work? I thought angels were sexless. I thought angels do not marry or are not given in marriage. That's true. That's what Jesus said. Those are the angels in heaven that are obedient to God, but angels that are disobedient to God probably don't care about God's rules, but could angels manifest themselves in a body? That's a question, and you know, if you ever listen to Bible Answer Man kind of talk shows, people ask these questions all the time, and the answer is, well, how could an angel procreate and, and all of that? We don't know for sure. This could have been by means of demonic possession. That's possible. We know that that does happen, and as mankind opens him up, himself up to the ways of Satan, that certainly can happen. And we say, well, wouldn't people recognize what was going on? Well, you know, when angels appear in the Bible, they appear human, in human form, at least they can materialize that way. We can see that in Genesis 18, when the angels come, and Abraham's running around trying to prepare a meal for them. Hebrews 13, one and two talk about that some have entertained angels, what? Unaware. So I, I will grant you this is a bit bizarre. This is probably one of the most difficult passages in the scriptures, but it tells me something about Satan. He is subtle. He is a liar. Jesus says he was a liar from the beginning. And if you accept the biblical narrative of what's going on in the world, then you know there's a spiritual battle. His ultimate desire is to destroy and pull down souls and stop his own demise. And so he, he is about that particular business. And here's the response of the Lord to all that is going on, and I'll let you wrestle a little bit more with how you want to in, interpret what's going on in verse two. But it says in verse three of Genesis six, then the Lord said, in light of what was going on in verses one and two, my spirit, ruach is the Hebrew word, the Spirit, John 16, 8, has come to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. The Lord said, in response to verses one and two, my spirit will not strive with man forever. The word strive is a unique word here. It's yadon, and it means to judge, to contend, or to plead. It could have the idea from the JPS commentary that God says, I'm not gonna go on suspending judgment. It could have the idea that I'm not going to abide with man forever in these conditions. It could be the idea that I'm going to plead with man, but only for so long. 
We are his ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, as though God were what? Pleading through us for people to be reconciled to God. And there were two preachers. We know at least Enoch was a preacher in his time and Noah was a preacher of righteousness and Noah kept saying to people, the flood is coming. The flood is coming. And do you know how many people got into that ark? Eight people. And there's extra biblical writing, which we'll tackle in the weeks ahead, that say that Noah was mocked by his generation and people walked by and said, what are you doing, old man? What's the reason for the ark? And at every opening monologue in, in the early centuries of talk shows, it was all about nutty Noah. There's nutty Noah again. But with each tap of the hammer, Noah was sending a message to his generation that he believed God and he believed his word and he condemned the world by his faith. And I'm sure when people walked by, even though they mocked him, I'm sure people took some big gulps when they turned away and said, I hope he's not right. You see, people do go home and they have to face their own mortality and the reality that God's fingerprints are everywhere in this universe. People already know there's a God. But some of these things are not easy for people to accept. Is God really gonna judge the world again? Well, Peter tells us, yes, in the last days, mockers will come with their mockers and they will with their mocking and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Everything remains as it was before since the days of creation. And Peter says basically that they are dumb on purpose. They ignore the reality that there was a worldwide flood. In fact, in the world right now, there are about 300 different flood legends in different cultures in the world. 300 legends of a flood. Some of them have little different variations, but just about every culture in the world has a story of a flood and a few people getting on a boat and surviving. Aren't you glad that Noah believed God? If he didn't, you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. Because every family that is now on the face of the earth derives its origin from Noah and his three sons and their wives. See, faith is something that God asks us to exercise. And God says, man is flesh. Maybe he's saying, man has now just become no better than the animals. Look at verse three, and I'm not gonna strive with him forever. And the 120 years here, some people believe, is now what the age will fall to. Man will be given 120 years maximum life. But if that's the case, there's people who live beyond that after this declaration, in fact, Abraham lived to 175, Isaac was 180, Jacob was 147, Moses himself died at 120 years of age, Aaron made it to 123, and the ancient uh, commentators on the Bible said the 120 years was the time from the beginning of God's declaration or the span it took to build the ark. God let Noah build it for 120 years. A biblical generation, most agree, is 40. 40 is a number of testing and um, preparation. God gave three times 40, 120 years to mankind, saying, I'm gonna give you a triple patience. I'm gonna wait and wait, and Noah tapped on the ark. He was probably 100 miles inland when he built it. 
Probably never had seen rain before, but his life became a message. And he preached, and he built, and he built, and he preached. And he had seven converts, or eight converts. That's it. See, people just turned their ears off. They, they were so engrossed with the, the things of their own lives that they wouldn't listen. When Jonah walked Nineveh, the prophet who didn't want to preach to the Ninevites, you remember that? He said, oh no, I won't go. And he went the other way and the Lord said, you will go. And he picked him up with a fish, remember that? And, no, and uh, he went and preached, did Jonah. And he said, how many days in Nineveh will be overthrown? You got 40 days, man. This number 40 is an interesting number. Well, God says it's 120 years, and I believe the best interpretation is that's how long it took to build the ark. I mean, imagine if you were called to build the ark. I know some of you are mechanical, but if I was asked to build the ark, I would say, what? I don't even know where to start, Lord. Well, Noah walked by faith, and he pleased God. In Revelation 2, there's a woman named Jezebel in the church at Thyatira, and God says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her immorality. God always gives a space of time to repent, but then the flood comes. Folks, this is not the most pleasant stuff, but this is the reality of the Bible. God will give you a space of time to repent. He will shake your life. He'll try to get your attention. But then there's gonna come a time when judgment comes. So it says the Nephilim, literally, verse four, this is the fallen ones. Remember, Lucifer had fallen from heaven, Isaiah 14, 12. The Nephilim, that's a Hebrew word for the fallen ones from the root nephal, were on the earth in those days. Are they the product of this union between the sons of God and the daughters of men? Possibly. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, That phrase came into has a sexual connotation. And they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Nephilim is used again in Numbers 13.33 when they go into the promised land and they say that Nephilim, the sons of Anak, Numbers 13.33, made them look like grasshoppers in their sight. So there are some that conclude that whatever's going on in this ungodly cohabitation, it produces Weird-looking giants, something like Goliath. I was doing a little quick research on giants over history. Do you know right now, I think the tallest man on the earth is eight foot one. He's got a foot over Shaquille O'Neal. He makes Shaquille O'Neal look like a shrimp. And there have been pictures throughout history. You can go on the internet. You'll get some weird sights, but you'll get some solid pictures as well. And there's been some large people on the earth. Really, like, huge people. Well, whatever is going on here, the Nephilim seem to be a product of these relationships. They're mighty men, probably known for their strength and power and size, and they become men of renown on the earth. I know it's strange, but here's what seems to be happening in this time. What's the Lord's response? Then the Lord saw, Ra'ah, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, literally the word is product, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God looks. What does he see? You watch a news report. 
You watch the first 10 minutes of the news, and some of you have stopped watching the news, and sometimes I have to take a break from the news as well. But you watch the first 10 minutes of a news report, and do you know what your heart is doing? Imagine times that by whatever God takes in in a moment of time around the globe. What do you think it does to him? What do you think he felt, if I can put it that way, when he looked at his creation and saw what man was doing? Now, the focus is on man's behavior, and that's why some say, well, maybe this is not angels because the focus is on man, but it says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and here's a sad reality. If you want to know what the days of Noah look like, mark Genesis 6-5. It says that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, that means bad, hurtful, or wicked, continually. Every mind had been corrupted. Now, as bad as society is getting in our time, and I mean, if, you've been, if you have been alive for a while, you have been watching a rapid decline of society, have you not? I mean, it's happened so fast with law after law being passed right now. You know, the state of California just passed a law a few days ago signed by Governor Jerry Brown that now our crisis pregnancy centers have to post information on where you can get an abortion in a crisis pregnancy center. Now, why in the world would they pass a law like that? Now, Big Brother in California tells our crisis pregnancy centers they must either post a flyer on the wall, give the information digitally or by brochure on where a woman can get an abortion. Mandated by California state law. Why do crisis pregnancy centers exist? To try to hold up life. To try to tell women there are options like adoption and they provide ultrasounds to hold up life. And now our governor has passed a law that our crisis pregnancy centers have to give the other information. So there were two ladies on Fox, one from NARAL, she's supporting you know, uh, the pro-abortion side, another woman from the pro-life side. And Megan Kelly, to her credit, said to the woman from NARAL, okay, if you believe that the law should be the way it is, why don't you allow crisis pregnancy center information to be posted in your clinics, in your abortion clinics? Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. So this is a one-sided deal, right? So now Big Brother is gonna go into the crisis pregnancy centers and tell us what we can do. That's what's happening, you guys, right under our noses. And the, the laws are being churned out so fast, sometimes it makes my head spin. You know, we've long forgotten about the bathroom laws in California and the other things that are going on. We just kind of move on, but I'm telling you right now, our society is on a slippery slope. And all of this has been undergirded by people saying, eh, is there really truth? Eh, is there really a God? Is there really moral absolutes? Do you see? It's happened right now. Happening right now happened right under our noses. But there's still hope because we're here and God has called us to be salt and light in our generation. And some people just, they just don't understand. They just don't have all the information. And the, the every, every intent of their thoughts is the word, Hebrew word, yetzer. It's the idea of a, uh, pottery being formed 
It's the idea of a shaping of a thought. Here's the question. Who is shaping our thoughts? Our children's thoughts. The media or the word of God? I ask you that. I ask myself that as a father, as a pastor. Well, every time someone had a thought and this time, you know what they did? They reshaped it into an idol and it was all about them. They were able to take every thought and instead of taking it captive to the obedience of Christ, they shaped it, they turned it around only for evil. Every thought that came into their mind. This is, this is terrible degeneration in humanity. They turned it into evil, only evil, continually. Wow. That's how far mankind had slidden down. That's the days of Noah. And the battle, my friends, my brothers and sisters, you must understand, spiritual warfare is fought in the, in the area or arena of ideas. Ideas have consequences. Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual for the pulling down of what? Strongholds. Every thought that is raised up against the knowledge of God must be demolished. And the only way people can be released from strongholds is by truth. The truth will set you what? Free. See, we need to have our minds renewed. We need to have our minds cleansed because you walk through that world, man, and it's easy to get dirty brains. It's easy to, to just be uh, you know, these things, they call it temptation for a reason. Temptation, by definition, is tempting. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called temptation. It's a battle, but the battle belongs to who? To the Lord. He will be your strength. It's not going to always be easy. We realize that we're in a battle. This is where we are. Humanity so degenerated that everything that he thought, you know, we look at people today and we go, how could someone do something like that? But we understand, as a man thinks, Proverbs 23, 7, so he is. You see, that's why right now the battlefield is for the youth. Have you noticed? That's what's going on in our world, folks. We've got to win them back. They're leaving the church in droves around their college years. Why? We've got to have better arguments. We're gonna do more things here with apologetics, defending the historic Christian faith. We have good arguments, we have good sound reasoning, but we've got to communicate that to future generations. We need the next generation to stand up and know what they believe and why they believe it. There's no more space for nominal Christians, you guys. No more. We gotta have people reading their Bibles in addition to Sundays. This is where the church must become strong again because the world is being swept away. Professing to be wise, they became fools, right? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man or four-footed animals. Humanity began its slide. And God looked Look at verse six, and the Lord, I want to cry too. 
And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. If you want to know what to feel when you look, that's what you should feel. If you want to become more like your God, it's not about waving a bony righteous finger at people. He was grieved. He looked around at what happened to his creation. And he, you know, this is what they call um, an anthro, um, anthropomorphism or a, a way to show the anthropopathism, a way to show the, the in human terminology that God feels. And when God looked, he was grieved. He looked around at his creation and it broke his heart. Ezekiel 6, 9, God says to his people, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I've been hurt or broken or crushed or grieved by their adulterous hearts which they turned away from me and by their eyes which they played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. At some point, have you ever just had a moment where you realized how holy God is and what you had been sowing to and you went, oh my goodness. Uh, this week, for some reason, I've been kind of almost extra emotional about things, even thinking about what God has saved me from. None of us have arrived, none of us are perfect, but we have a message of hope to proclaim. But we have a God in heaven. Look, if he didn't care, he wouldn't be grieved. If he just wound up a clock and said, good luck, humanity, he wouldn't be brokenhearted over what we do. This is about a personal God who is involved with his creation. He cares about what we do. He cares about how we live. If he didn't, he wouldn't do anything. There would be no emotion recorded here, no feeling. But then the Lord says something radical. Then the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, everything pays the price, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then we'll end in verse eight, but it says, a little light here, but Noah, his name means comfort or rest, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in God's eyes. Why? Well, one reason we know is that Noah was walking with the Lord. He, just like Enoch, was walking with God. Just look at Genesis 6, verse 9. It says, these are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Doesn't mean perfect, but he was consistent. And Noah did what? He walked with God. Look at 7, verse 1, chapter 7, 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Look, it's true, God's grace is what salvation is all about, but it's also true that his grace should produce something in our lives, that we should be living out what we're trying to give out. Go to Hebrews 11 and we're done. Hebrews 11, all the way in the New Testament. The word favor or grace is in Greek, charis. In the Hebrew picture language, it means to fence or protect life. That's what God's grace does. It means to 
be favorably inclined towards, to give compassion, to make camp with. It has the idea of a walk, a two-way relationship, but God is the one giving the grace. Grace protects us from our flesh, from our own failures. This word is used of Noah in Genesis 6.8, of Abraham in Genesis 18.3, of Lot in Genesis 19.19, of Jacob uh, before Esau, of Joseph in the eyes of Potiphar, of Israel in uh, their favor in the sight of the Egyptians, of Gideon in Judges 6, of Ruth before Boaz. It's the idea of grace. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, It's not by works, it is the gift of God, not by works so that what? No man should boast, but we usually stop there. For we are his work of art, his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. Grace is a gift, you cannot earn it, we don't deserve it, but it is responded to or appropriated or received by faith. Hebrews 11, seven and we're done. By faith, Noah, Hebrews eleven seven, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is what? According to faith. Grace is received by faith. God extends grace The cross of Jesus is the prime example. My son died for you. I so loved you that I gave him, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Grace is a gift, but every gift must be what? Received, or it's not yours. You're not automatically a child of God. You must receive God's favor or grace through Christ by faith. That's the channel by which you receive God's grace. We must respond. Two final thoughts. One, if you're a believer, what ark has God called you to build in this generation? And are you building it? Number one application, what ark by faith has God called you to build and are you building it? That's the question. Number two question, if you're not sure where you are with Christ, you haven't understood God's grace and favor and the cross and the resurrection, have you received Christ into your life? Have you boarded the ark of God's grace? Because the flood is coming. Now God's not gonna flood the world with water again, we all know that, that's the rainbow or the bow in the sky, but God has made a promise He's reserved the current heavens and earth for another kind of judgment, and it ain't pretty. It's a judgment by fire. And Peter says, because all these things are going to be consumed in this way, what what people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Look, the second coming of Christ should be a motivator for us. But Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, It's gonna be just that way at the coming of the Son of Man. So maybe we shouldn't be too surprised, but at the same time, I think we gotta get busy about God's work. Even if people around you think you're a fool, I have gotten to a point 
or I don't care. I don't care. I know what's in man, amen? I love people. I try to reach out to unbelievers, but I'm not worried about my rep. I'm not worried about if people say, hey, that Michael Lance guy believes there was a worldwide flood. (laughs) I don't care. Because I look around me and I see evidence of it everywhere. And so it is incumbent upon us as God's people to say, Lord, how should I respond to this message? And I think he would say, be a light, build an ark, send the message that there's hope, there's grace, but there's a space for grace. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. These are sobering realities, but this is what our Bible says. This is what you said. This is how you felt. Yet Noah found grace in your eyes. And we as believers have found grace in your eyes. You're a God of grace, a God who delights in loving kindness and mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? Not me, but with you there's forgiveness. With you, amazing grace. We sing about it all the time, Lord, and it is amazing. Every sin that we've ever committed, you have erased in Jesus at the cross through the resurrection. It's my hope. And Lord, as we ponder these things, I pray that you'll help us to just take a look at our own hearts this morning. See how you might speak to us. See how you might use us in our generation, Lord. Thank you for all the precious people here who have been touched by grace and are trying to spread it in the sphere of influence that you've given them. I praise you for this wonderful church body that wants to reach out and bless and extend the gospel to others. And I pray you'll begin to multiply them and their efforts, Lord, the fruit of their efforts. With your head and heart bowed, if you have an ark to build, God's been calling you to do something by faith. I would encourage you to step through that open door while there's yet time. And if you're not a believer with your head and heart bowed, it's something like this. If you wanna just settle it and you wanna get on board the ark, trust in Jesus, make it official right now, it's something like this. And I would encourage you, pray right now. Pray it out loud. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. You rose from the dead. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. I repent, I've turned from my sin and I turn to you through your son. Thank you that you came and died that I might live. If you're a prodigal, and maybe it's time for you to get right with God, something very similar should be prayed. Lord, thank you that you're so merciful and so loving. I pray your love and your goodness and your grace will shower these precious people. Strengthen them in the areas where they have doubt. Meet them in the areas where they have need for healing. Heal our backsliding, Lord. Make us a people with a passion for the truth.
Thank you that you're so merciful when we fall short. Please heal marriages that may be in trouble this morning. Bring reconciliation among Christians so that the enemy has no foothold in this united front that we must have as we charge the hill together. Lord, I pray that you'd fill us afresh for the week ahead. Give us your eyes and your heart for this world. Let our eyes and what we see turn us to action that would please you so that we might live out what we want to give out. We just want to say we love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.